This is Farms Food Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet and good for farmers. Brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. I'm Brian Thompson. In this month's programme, it's International Women's Day. We speak to IFAD's lead on gender and social inclusion, Ndaya Belchika. Also, we have news from partner projects working on the front line for women's rights in Uganda and India. After that, we'll be putting the glam back into the green movement and what it means for farmers and how solar cookers could be an interesting option for lowering emissions from cooking in developing countries. Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with me at podcasts at ifad.org. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform and please rate us. International Women's Day is celebrated March 8th and this year the theme is Each for Equal. Ndaya Belchika is IFAD's lead technical specialist on gender and social inclusion. She told me that this year's theme is all about gender equality being a concern for everyone. It celebrates the achievements of women but also works to increase awareness on the challenges women and girls face in the ongoing fight for equality. I asked Ndaya about the situation of women and girls in rural communities. It is true uh, on International Women's Day, the focus is primarily on urban women. And then we tend to overlook the 1.7 billion of women and girls living in rural communities. And the communities are far in between. Uh, what they do, they work the land. Um, sometimes in dire circumstances, they feed their children. Uh, they do a lot of the domestic work, uh, most of the time unpaid. Um, and then they're also responsible for collecting fuel and water. Sometimes they have to long very, very long distances. Some of the women, um, they do lack authority in their homes. Even when they work, they do not have decision-making power over the money that they earned. Um, and then they also are unable to voice their concern within their own family. So that is an image that sometimes we are not fully aware of. But at the same time, in the same communities, we do have women um, that are business starters. They are entrepreneurs, they are community leaders. And so regardless of what they do, all of them, still face a lot of inequality. So, and in my view, we should celebrate all women, the urban as well as the rural women. What have we done in terms of concrete actions here at IFAD to work on these issues? Uh, so IFAD invests in rural people uh, to enable an inclusive and sustainable rural transformation. To do that, it does that in partnership with government. In 2018, 114.7 million receive services from IFAD, and 51% of them were women. In 2019, uh, when we developed our projects for the design process, 32% of our projects made the commitment to actually address all of the norms and the cultural practices that are perpetuating gender inequality. So in terms of example, what can we say? So I wanted just to mention one of them uh, because it's, it's, it's a powerful one. It's an example in the southern Punjab uh, in Pakistan. 
That project has adopted what we call the poverty graduation approach, uh, whereby it focuses on the ultra poor and poor within the community to bring them along the curve so eventually they can take advantage of mainstreaming investment opportunity. The majority of the activities are organized and decided by community organizations. And then in that particular area, the majority of the members are women. And then what they do, they voice their concern to dictate or at least to inform the type of activities in the community as well as the type of investments. As an example, the project has built 1,600 houses with running water as well as bathroom and solar power. The ownership of those houses is in the name of the women participating in the program. This is extremely powerful because the women now that they own those houses, they have a different status within the home as well as within the community. And even their voice is heard when they discuss family matters. So this is key. Another investment, another decision that is made, that was made by those communities, is now to build toilets in the communities. They built 5,000 of them. So then it promotes hygiene, better sanitation, but also security for the young girls and boys. So that's quite important. And also, uh, another investment decision that was made is to allow women to actually buy small animals so that enable them to build income. So all of those decisions were taken in partnership with those organizations where women are primarily represented and contributed to reducing the poverty in that community from 58% to 4%. This is just as an example. Over, over the next year, yeah. what is it you plan to be focusing on in 2020? In 2020, it will be um, Beijing 25 plus. And so that's when the global community will mark the 25th anniversary of the adoption of the Beijing Declaration and Platform for Action, which in 1995 um, endorsed a global agenda on women's empowerment. So this is major because now the institutions working on women's empowerment, in particular IFAD and the others, can bring forward the agenda on women's empowerment. In particular, IFAD and the other Rome-based agencies have been identified as leading an interagency group to work on rural women and girls, to actually bring forward their agenda and then to represent their need and then to continue to call for additional investments for women and girls. So the idea is to propose uh, or to present an advocacy paper in September and also to organize an event at the 64th Commission on the Status of Women in New York in March. Thanks to Ndaya Belchika, IFAD's lead technical specialist for gender and social inclusion. We'll be talking to Ndaya about what difference International Women's Day makes for people on the ground and why we shouldn't be moving to an International People's Day. That's coming up later in the programme. Meanwhile, you can find out more about what the International Fund for Agricultural Development is all about by going to our website, www.ifad.org. And you can also find more podcasts at the same address, forward slash podcasts. Coming up, we hear from one of our partners in India, where they've reached more than a million women. A major partner for IFAD's work on gender is India's Mahila Arthik Vikas Mahamandal, also known as MAVIM. It's the Women's Development Corporation for the Indian state of Maharashtra. 
Established 45 years ago this year, Mavim has partnered with IFAD on its Tejaswini Maharashtra Rural Women Empowerment Program. This program focuses on women's development, building on lessons learnt from earlier projects that demonstrated women's self-help groups as an effective means of improving the living conditions of poor households. It also ensures that poor rural women have a wider range of opportunities and support and strengthens women's self-help groups and provides access to financial services. The project improves income generation by developing skills and providing market and policy support. It increases women's access to functional literacy and labour-saving infrastructure and boosts their participation in local governance. It also supports government policies that empower women. Shraddha Joshi is Managing Director of Mavim. She explained more about the unique features of the Tejaswini program. A very unique feature of this Tejaswini program was creation of strong and vibrant federations of self-help groups. We call them CMRCs, Community Managed Resource Centers. That is one of the most important, actually, innovation under this program. These CMRCs, uh, it is a unique model of community-owned institutions for addressing women's needs for financial services and livelihood support activities, addressing common and household issues faced by women. Uh, it has got many features. If we uh, see, then uh, most important feature was the fo focus was on disciplined financial behavior. So it helped make them uh, part of the formal credit system. The program is present in more than 10,000 villages in some 33 districts of Maharashtra, and the self-help groups that are a key part of the work comprise a network of more than 1 million women. One of the major lessons Mavim learned since being set up was that empowering women is not just about improving their economic situation. Shraddha told me how they changed their approach in the Tejaswini program. We realize that women who are earning are still not socially empowered. Economic empowerment does not automatically translate into socio-political empowerment. So we learned that unless we holistically empower women, opportunity provision alone is not enough. Uh, for example, even if the government enacts policies and affirmative action for women, unless women are empowered to leverage those opportunities, empowerment cannot be achieved. So what we learned was that unless you work in capacity building, opportunity provision alone is not enough. And then we started working towards more and more towards capacity building of these women. So we changed our approach. We uh, found that economic development is not the only key. It has to be integrated with all other things and especially towards capacity building so that they can leverage this component. Another innovation in the project has been the setting up of community-managed resource centres. These bring together around 150 to 200 self-help groups formed in a cluster of around 20 villages. But what have been the main benefits from the project? Shraddha told us more. I really feel great about the project because it has helped us a lot as a cadre if we see. So the women are now have an agency. They didn't have any agency in their households. Discrimination was so high. At every level it was present. If you see either skilled or unskilled, urban or rural, white collar or blue collar, they, they were facing discrimination everywhere. But after Tejaswini, if we see, 
situation has changed a lot. They are now coming um, coming forward. They raise their voices. They are doing good for the society, and it has it is being translated into development of the whole community. So actually, the project has helped us a lot economically, politically, socially. Every where we are seeing the development. This year's International Women's Day is themed Each for Equal. We're still a very long way from that. We asked Shraddha what she thinks is the most important thing that still needs to be done to get there. So it is also equally important to realise that achieving gender equality is essential to pursue all other sustainable development goals also. It, uh, actually, if we talk about gender equality, then it not only affects women but has multiplier effects. And at home, if we see, so within the household, we should address this uh, inequality. Tasks within the household should not be categorized by gender. Instead, they must be equally shared. So across the board, right from panchayati raj institution or to a corporate boardroom, boardroom or any other level, number of women in leadership roles. Actually, if we see, even now, entrepreneurship level, if we see in India, I think it is around 14% participation. At world level, it is just 20% or so. If we see about uh, land ownership, that component also talks about just 20% share is owned by women. So, everywhere the problem is, actually, this problem is a big, big problem. And situation has not changed. It is uh, really very bad. Discrimination levels are very, very high. Thanks to Shraddha Joshi, Managing Director of Mavim, talking to us on Farms Food Future. Go to ifad.org forward slash podcasts to hear our other episodes. In episode one, we have news from Malawi, where women are leading the way to fight climate change in farming. In episode two, we have an interview with Brenda Tlabene, a member of the African Farmers Association of South Africa. And in episode three, we talk to a woman agropreneur in India, putting the spice back into chocolate. All that and lots more in Farms Food Future. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform and please rate us. But back to this edition, coming up as International Women's Day comes around, we've been talking to a project in Uganda that's putting women front and center in the farming equation. In Uganda, IFAD is working with the Project for the Restoration of Livelihoods in the Northern Region, or PRELNOR. Judith Ruko is the Community Development Specialist with PRELNOR, and she explains that the project's main role is to improve incomes and food security. But she also told us that women are facing bigger issues in the region, as traditionally they don't own the land they live on as it passes down through the male line of the family. This can even extend to women who do up to 80% of the work on the farms not owning the proceeds of their own labour, with limited or no decision-making powers on their income. Judith explains how the project targets the issues facing women. Yeah, the project targets women through the farmer group activities, and many of the farmer group activities are actually to support women access extension services. Uh, and then the project also is targeting women through the household mentoring methodology because uh, it's known that most of the, the poorest households are those headed by females. 
So the project targets these women in two ways. And for the, uh, for, through the summer group activities, women are able to access uh, extension services. They are able to access information. They are able to access uh, information on weather uh, so that uh, they, do, they plant their crops at the correct season. And they also access other trainings, capacity building trainings for leadership, because they have to also be part of the leaders in the farmer groups that we target. And then for the mentored households, households are taken through the mentoring process where they are expected to come up with a joint household vision and an action plan. And this all happens after doing a household situation analysis. And this uh, allows the households to plan their lives in a better way and then analyze their situation so that if they have gender-based violence within the household, they actually agree to have this solved. If they have uh, food security issues, they put it on the action plan to work towards solving the food insecurity issues. If they have uh, decision-making problems within the household, they agree to have an action of making joint decisions within that household. And this is a very powerful tool because uh, the households are able to plan their lives, which is something that doesn't happen without this kind of mentoring support. The results of the project, which started nearly five years ago, speak for themselves. 44% of the agricultural extension workers employed by the project are women. Normally, this sort of paid job was only done by men in the past. With the community-based volunteers, 50% are women. This means overall that women are talking to each other about their issues and what can be done to improve things. All of the 14,000 female-headed households are now members of farmer groups, where they get the latest information and support service. All of the 1,200 farmer groups have women in leading positions. The project is reporting reduced levels of gender-based violence and improved food security for female-headed households. And 90% are saving, with 90% also using pictorial visions to plan and invest for the future. But what is the message Judith has for the future and International Women's Day? Yeah, for International Women's Day, we as the project for restoration of livelihoods in the northern region are saying women have issues. These issues can only be known if you have a dialogue with the women and you capture these issues properly so that you actually address women's issues from their lived experiences. It's only when we do that that we will actually reach the women and address the correct issues that they are facing and grappling with. Thank you so much. And thanks to Judith joining us from Uganda. I'm Brian Thompson and this is Farms Food Future. You can hear more podcasts by going to www.ifad.org forward slash podcasts. Coming up, we go back to Ndaya Belchika and find out what difference International Women's Day makes for women and girls living in rural communities in developing countries. As promised, we have more news from Ndaya, IFAD's lead technical specialist on gender and social inclusion. We carried on our conversation to look at the power of International Women's Day and why we still need it. I asked Ndaya if she thinks IWD really makes a difference. Actually, I do believe that they do make a difference. It's true that it's celebrated or it's marked every year. Uh, but every year there is a different theme. Uh, for instance, last year it was Balance for Better. And so that theme called on the global community to really push for the gender parity agenda. As an example now, um, corporations are required, or at least 
voluntarily decided to disclose the parity number, and that is at different level, from the boardroom to different level of professions, as well as the different information on uh, the pay gap. Then if we want to go back to last year, so although the team was balanced for better, the UN uh, Secretary General in 2017 had unveiled the strategy for the UN system for gender parity. So at that time, the UN then adopted a different theme, which was think equal, build smart, innovate for change. And that one was key because it really brought to the forefront to the community that if we are hoping to close the gender gap by 2030, we're going to have to adopt innovative approaches to do so. But who would do those innovation approaches? So it would be in science, innovation, capital investment, technology. But in those fields, women are underrepresented. So if we want to close the gap, we need to be innovative. But then to be innovative, women have to be represented in all of those fields. So that is an example on how the theme itself can actually drive the conversation for a year or so, whereby we still look at gender equality, but we are focusing in different domain. And this year, with Each for Equal, it's another way to say that it is a concern of everybody. It's not just a women's issue. It's a men's issue. It's a women's issue. It's an issue for old, for young, across all socioeconomic strata. We should all be concerned about gender equality, so it matters. There's been some chatter mm -hmm. online mm -hmm. um, whenever International Women's Day comes along that says it's no longer needed and can't we have a People's Day instead? W what do you make of that? Do you see a point in time when International Women's Day won't be needed? First, I mean, the short answer, I disagree with the fact that we should no longer have one. We should focus on People's Day then we should also remember the aim of that campaign, right? I mean, the aim of the campaign is to achieve full gender equality for women of the world, everybody, all the women. We are very far from it. So until we reach that point, to answer your second question, yes, maybe we won't need an anti-racial women's day, but we are very far from it. And I'll just you know, give you some numbers. So we know that it's a concern. So if we look at some numbers, we see that women of all ages, ethnicities, socioeconomic status, education level, continue to be victim of violence, okay? 18% of the women aged between 15 and 49 who have had a partner in their lives experience gender-based violence. That is unacceptable. Child marriage remains a practice in many societies. For instance, the practice has declined by 40% in Southern Asia since 2000. However, in 2018, 30% of women aged between 20 and 24 reported being married before the age of, of 18, okay? And now if we think of education, about a third of the developing countries do not have yet achieved gender parity in primary education. In Sub-Saharan Africa, Oceania, Western Asia, girls still face barriers to entry both primary and secondary schools. All of that limit access to skills, opportunities, and starts the vicious, circ the vicious circles of poverty and inequality. So again, I s we still have a long way to go, and we have to continue every year to bring back the message that gender equality matters, it's important for the society, and it's important for the world. We are talking about 50% of global population. 
thanks to Ndaya Belchika, IFAD's lead technical specialist for gender and social inclusion. Meanwhile, you can find out more about what the International Fund for Agricultural Development is all about by going to our website www.ifad.org and you can also find more podcasts at the same address forward slash podcasts. Coming up, we talk sustainable fashion and green stilettos. The fashion and luxury goods industry is big business, and like many businesses, it's responding increasingly to consumer demand to be sustainable. Also, this has implications for agriculture as a major contributor of raw materials for that very same industry. Zenia Chernyskanen is a long-time environmentalist and fashionista who keeps a beady eye on what's going on in the fashion and luxury goods industry in her blog, Green Stilettos. She set Green Stilettos up seven years ago to put the glam back into the green. I asked Xenia why this is an important issue for smallholder farmers in developing countries. Well, in many ways, farmers in developing countries are actually part of the uh, fashion supply chain without maybe realizing it in some in, in some cases. But uh, to give you one example is that um, we know that, for instance, cotton is a major, major crop and textile uh, that is used around the world. And we've seen that uh, although, for instance, organic cotton has been in existence for the past quarter of a century, it hasn't yet reached the critical mass. Today, uh, only 1% of all cotton is uh, coming from organic farms, and there is definitely scope to do much more. It has been growing. According to the latest report, it has been growing at about 10% a year globally. But uh, we know that we can do more, and in some cases, it, it is developing countries that are leading the way and actually having a greater share of organic production um, coming out onto the global market. So that's perhaps one reason. The other reason is that there are other ways in which farmers and uh, those involved in food production more broadly can also participate in uh, developing some of the innovations that uh, are coming up in the fashion industry. One of them, for instance, is the use of waste as a resource. Uh, to give just one example, there is a company in Italy that pioneered the use of orange waste, so orange peel, to produce silk-like materials. And uh, that has been really picked up even by luxury brands already. And it's a great example of how really somebody's trash could become somebody else's treasure. So broadening this out and looking back at the, the, the industry, both the fashion and the luxury goods industries, what are the major sustainability issues you think we're facing in 2020 in that sector? Well, the uh, sustainability issues are obviously many and varied. If you look on the environmental sustainability side, there is definitely a concern around basically the sustenance of, of some of the resources that form the basis of luxury products, be it pearls, uh, be it caviar, be it um, the, the source of perfumes such as uh, agar wood, which is a very prized um, Type of wood that is uh, used in the, um, in the in the in the scents and fragrances around the world. So the sustenance of those very resources, in some cases, is at stake. Uh, furthermore, we are obviously talking about a growing awareness of the impacts in terms of water and energy consumption that is associated with these industries. Uh, climate change is definitely on everyone's lips and minds these days. 
So the uh, industry definitely has to face up to some of its uh, impacts. And it's a little known fact that the fashion industry is actually a greater contributor to the global carbon emissions, even compared to the aviation industry. So the impacts are definitely uh, not insignificant. And then on the social side, obviously, we're talking about the conditions in which some of our clothes or products are being made and also the overall human rights dimension that is becoming uh, also more and more uh, significant in some, of the, in some places where uh, production is taking place. Some people say that fashion is a bit of a, a fickle friend and trends move and trends change all the time. That's the business. Is it becoming more trendy, more fashionable to be sustainable? I hope that it's going to go even beyond that. I hope it's not just going to be another passing trend, but it's also going to be um, a sine qua non for the, for the industry going forward, that it, it really is going to be uh, an integral part, almost like a hygiene factor that will be associated with the industry. I think we've come a long way. I think this decade has seen some very positive developments. I think there's definitely a very, very much a growing awareness of this topic. Um, even you know, seven years ago, when I would mention to somebody uh, sustainable fashion, people would not really know what I was talking about. Nowadays, I think people are nodding more and more, and they realize that, yes, we as consumers also have a role to play in ensuring that the industry is, is more sustainable. In some ways, we need to slow down this industry. And here, there are also very interesting parallels between the fashion industry and the food industry, because I think in, in the area of food, we are growing um, in our realization that we need to consume less and consume better. And in the same ways, we have to apply this in, in terms of the clothes we wear. And, and just as, as, as a final question, we're moving into a new decade, as you mentioned, and you mentioned earlier that fascinating innovation here in Italy with using orange peel to make fabric. What other unusual substances are being used to, um, within the luxury goods and, and fashion sector now? I think this is a very exciting area and definitely one to watch. And we've got a lot of innovations coming through the pipeline. Uh, some of them, for instance, again, uh, refer to the use of waste products as resources. Uh, you could see, for instance, that in places such as Brazil and Kenya, people are increasingly turning to fish skin as uh, an alternative to leather. And it's actually quite durable and quite aesthetically pleasing as well, believe it or not. Um, in some other parts of the world, for instance, in the Philippines, there are... Um, companies that are using uh, pineapple also to produce um, material for, for, for shoes, for sneakers, for instance. Uh, it's called Pinatex, and it has been used already by a number of brands. We also have seen, obviously, on the, um, on the side of, of polyester and other types of materials that there is a lot more effort invested in recycling or producing um, for instance, again, shoes from uh, plastic waste, uh, such as, for instance, the, the collaboration be between Adidas and Parley for the Oceans. So we are seeing that there is a lot more creativity associated with where we source our, um, our textiles, our materials for clothes and footwear, etc. But I think we can see also that it's 
going to develop even further. I have seen um, um, examples of uh, substances such as milk and seaweed and corn also being used to, uh, to, to produce textiles, although maybe they haven't reached the same scale and uh, awareness as some of the others. Thanks to Xenia, and you can find out more about sustainable fashion at greenstilettos.com. Coming up, we speak to Solar Cookers International's Executive Director, Caitlin Hughes. Solar Cookers International says that it improves human and environmental health by supporting the expansion of effective, carbon-free solar cooking in the regions of greatest need. SCI leads through advocacy, research and strengthening the capacity of the global solar cooking movement. They say that three out of every seven people on the planet lack sustainable fuel to cook their meals and make water safe to drink. People who harness free solar energy for cooking, breathe cleaner air, drink safer water and preserve the environment. Nearly three billion people cook over wood, animal waste or charcoal fires. They breathe in smoke and soot for hours every day and more rely on expensive, unsustainable fossil fuels. SCI is busy encouraging countries to include solar cooking in their national determined contributions to reduce CO2 emissions under the Paris Agreement of the UN's climate deal. I asked Caitlin Hughes to explain how successful solar cookers are in reducing emissions compared to other sources of energy. So we've been able to identify over 3.7 million solar cookers around the world, um, positively directly impacting over 13 million uh, people, uh, but positively impacting all of us around the world every day. And so, so how do solar cookers help with, with mitigation and, and with reducing emissions? Do you have some numbers on that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, even the most basic solar cooker, one solar cooker can save one family one ton of wood in one year. So think about that multiplied by the 3.7 million known solar cookers. And then also our goal is to scale up solar cooking to address the almost half the world that's still cooking over open fires. So there's a lot of potential for impact there. Uh, solar cookers have no emissions, no no carbon dioxide, uh, no air pollution, so it really is a beautiful solution. And how suitable are our solar cookers for the smallholder farmers that IFAD is working with in developing countries? It's absolutely ideal. Solar cooking also has many additional benefits. For example, they can be used for solar drying. So that increases food security and food stability for populations. Also, another additional benefit of solar cookers is that they can be used to heat water to make it safe to drink. So not only are you reducing respiratory diseases, but you're also reducing uh, waterborne diseases as well. Uh, it also frees up people's time if they don't need to gather fuel, then they can spend more time tending to their crops, uh, for example, going to school, generating income in other ways. So it really is a powerful solution um, for exactly the, the people that you're speaking about. And, and just as for, for information, how much does it cost? I mean, is it an expensive solution or an easy cost option? It's a very accessible solution, which is one of the many reasons I love it. Uh, we actually have plans on our website, solarcookers.org, so you can make your own solar cooker, many of which can be make, made from recycled materials, so you're protecting the environment in that way as well, which is nice. Um, there are fancier models, you know, uh, individual household models that can range up to a few hundred dollars, and there's also institutional scale models. But yeah, uh, one of the beautiful things is that anybody can make one with materials that they probably have in their homes right now.
Thanks to Caitlin Hughes, Executive Director of Solar Cookers International, speaking to us at Farms Food Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. You can find out more about solar cooking by going to their website at solarcookers.org. That brings this edition of Farms Food Future to a close. Thanks to our producer, the fantabulous Francesco Manetti and John Deluce, and everyone who's worked on this programme. But most of all, thanks to you for listening to this episode of Farms Food Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. You can find out more about any of these stories at www.ifad.org forward slash podcast. Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and issues discussed? And who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with me, Brian Thompson, at podcasts at ifad.org. Send us your voice or text messages to that address and we'll be happy to play you out in the next show. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast platform and please rate us. We'll be back at the end of March with news of what IFAD's doing at the UN Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues in New York. And once again, we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet and good for the farmers. Until then, from me, Brian Thompson, and the team here at IFAD, thanks for listening.